Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 118, Revelation, the Healing of the Nations. And in this episode, I would like us to look at Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, where John describes for us the tree of life and the river of the water of life, both of which are to provide nourishment and healing to the nations. In fact, this is in large part what the final two chapters of Revelation are always aimed at, and that is spreading the blessings of the Lord and his kingdom truly to the ends of the earth. And so as we look at both of these themes, some of which we have seen surface already in Revelation and others we saw surface at the very beginning of this podcast, all the way back in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we'll have the chance to see again how the Bible is bringing these themes to a resounding end and just a fantastic way to close out the biblical story. So I'm excited to get into this with you. We'll look at several other passages, some from the Old Testament, some from the New Testament that will help us understand again what it is that John's trying to communicate to us here. So let's just jump jump right into it. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, I don't know about you, but that is just a beautiful passage. It's just beautiful in what it does to stir up the imagination, to stir up our desires and our longings for um, just a perfect shalom with our God, with the creation. But again, as many times in many passages of Revelation make clear, trying to interpret these visions literally or literalistically um, causes a few problems. And so I'm not going to do that. And I'm not going to go into too many more details as to why. I think by this point in Revelation, you understand why we are grasping at these um, ideas thematically and symbolically and metaphorically and apocalyptically, because I think that's the way John intends us to read them. But if you want to know something about what John has in his mind, he actually has a passage of scripture which is oftentimes overlooked. And for the life of me, I cannot remember if we've already talked about this on the podcast. So if we have, forgive me, I didn't take the time to review several hundred pages of notes that I have written down for these various episodes. But John is drawing from a scene in the book of Ezekiel. And just to give you a little background, Ezekiel is a priest and finds himself along the Chabar River, Chabar Canal in Babylon, having been exiled there on his 30th birthday with all of the rest of the Israelites. And Ezekiel proceeds to be given several visions of the Lord in the first few chapters that he records, at least, in the book of Ezekiel. 
explaining to Ezekiel exactly why it is that the Lord has exiled his people. And he shows Ezekiel hidden idolatry. He shows him injustices. He shows them ways in which the people had the Lord's name on their lips, but their hearts were far from him, somewhat similar to how Isaiah describes the same reality in his book. But Ezekiel is given this vision of not only the idolatry and injustice that's happening within the people's hearts, but it's also happening in the leader's hearts, and it is happening in the temple itself. And so in the temple, place where you imagine the Lord's presence dwells and he's at one with his people, the Lord actually gives Ezekiel visions of what the leaders of Israel were doing in their own hearts, worshiping other gods while in the temple. And thanks to Christopher Wright um, in his book, Here Are Your Gods, which we had a by the book episode about, he did a lot of helpful work for us to realize that idolatry is never quite as obvious or as overt as we sometimes like to imagine, but rather it's those things that we create with our own hands, even ideologies and systems and ways of functioning that in reality are actually, we are actually serving them as gods because we've put so much of our heart and soul into them. We imagine that those things sometimes take on godlike characteristics. And all throughout this podcast, you've heard me say that none of those realities can even escape the heart of a person who thinks he or she is devoted to the Lord. And Israel's life experience was no exception. Even its leaders were committing idolatry, unknown to them, of course, but God knows, and he sees the heart and was able to reveal to Ezekiel that major, major idolatry was taking place in the temple while claiming it was worship of the Lord. And this is where it really gets sinister. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Well, because in Ezekiel chapter 10, there is one of the saddest chapters in the Bible, and it is an explanation and a description of the presence of the Lord leaving the temple. The glory of the Lord rises up and out of the temple and flies away. And this is an image for Ezekiel of precisely why the people are now exiled. They thought that they were immune to discipline and immune to the brokenness of this world because the Lord dwelled in their midst until they found themselves without the Lord because he left them. And Ezekiel goes on through various prophecies, through enacting out various images to portray to the people the reason why the Lord is upset with them and what it might take for them and for the Lord to renew this relationship. Well, the last several chapters of the book of Ezekiel paint a picture of a day when a new temple will be built in Jerusalem that will be greater than the previous temple, the one in which the Lord left and the one in which many of these exiles witnessed the Babylonians destroying. In fact, the last several chapters of Ezekiel paint this very, very detailed picture of the kind of world that it will be when the Lord returns to his temple. In fact, that's how the book of Ezekiel ends. This magnificent temple is described. It's being given measurements and sources of water and where the throne is and what's happening there. And we've heard, as I've already tried to share through Revelation, um, several episodes ago was looking at the entire world as the new temple. And I do think that's consistent with the biblical story. And I think we have grounds for thinking that's the case here. 
Because in the very passage, the several chapters where Ezekiel is describing this new temple, here's what we read in Ezekiel 47. I want you to listen to these several verses and see if they sound similar at all to you, to what I just read from Revelation 22 about the tree of life and the river of the water of life and so on. And here's what Ezekiel tells us. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around to the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east and behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not pass through for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so that everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. From Engedi to Eneglam it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit each month, bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing." Now, I don't know what you picked up there, um, if you were able to make the connections. If not, allow me to make just several of them for you. Notice that this is a promise to restore the temple and restore the glory and the beauty and the life-giving source that comes from this temple. Again, being because the Lord himself dwells there. And in John's description, he talks about very many trees and he talks about all kinds of trees. Well, in John's vision, John kind of grabs these ideas of these trees, this fruit being for, um, you know, yielding its fruit every month of the year. Um, John picks that up right here in Revelation chapter 22, saying that, that it has 12 kinds of fruit and that they yield their fruit every month. Well, that would be the same as 12 times in a year. And so um, while John describes, or I'm sorry, while Ezekiel describes all kinds of trees surrounding this water source, John paints for us a picture of this water source as well, but says, and it's strange how he does this, but he says on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. 
So what John does is John takes all the imagery of all the trees, all kinds of trees, trees of every kind, this kinds of thing, very many trees, and he boils it down to one single tree. One single tree reminds you and I of the time way back in Genesis 2 where the Lord says in the midst of the garden is the tree of life as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And to briefly recap that, the idea here in the center of the garden was man and woman were given a choice. Will they freely receive what was given to them from the Lord, his authority, their dependence upon him, him providing for their every need? Will they allow him to provide for them what they need, their identity, their strength, and their abilities to do what he's called them to do, i.e. receive from the tree of life? Or will they reach out and take for themselves an identity, making a name for themselves like those at Babel do? And by deciding that their own identity, their own strength, their own choosing, and their own ways of ruling is what is going to cause the earth to flourish the best for mankind's benefit, hence the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Which tree will we receive from the Lord, his blessings, or will we reach out and take for ourselves and determine for ourselves the way those blessings ought to be ordered? This is the ultimate question. And here John's painting a picture for us, not only of this temple and this throne where the one seated on the throne and the lamb are, but all of the rich blessings that proceed out from this throne to spread across the earth. And here the focus is on the tree of life and the river of the water of life. Now, in John's vision, both are coming from the temple. So we have this strange reality here. We have this temple, which is kind of like a giant city, right? The new Jerusalem, this bride. But now John's describing this city as if it was a garden. He's talking about a river. He's talking about the tree of life on either side of the river. And, you know, you don't try to paint the picture in your mind. You know, don't try to imagine that there's a giant tree with a giant trunk, and that the river is flowing as if somebody notched out the center of the tree and is flowing. You can do that if you want, but John's image is meant to sort of transcend reality. This isn't something, I mean, that really wouldn't be a river at all, right? All that would be would be a tiny little creek or a little stream that you could just sort of hop, skip, and jump over. That's not the image. The image, and if you think back to the passage in Ezekiel, is a strange image. Um, I may just remind you of what Ezekiel sees. He sees water coming from this temple and it's flowing outward. And all along the way, you heard it repeated numerous times. He, he took me out, he led me, he measured a thousand and then I, it was ankle deep and then it was waist deep and then it was, or then it was knee deep and then it was waist deep and then it was so deep that I, I needed to swim. I wouldn't even be able to get across it. Now, I've, I've, I've actually worked in churches before with other pastors on staff, and we have disagreements about how this passage is to be interpreted. And I only bring that up because I know some of you are in contexts where you believe what I'm saying, but there are others around you who don't hold to your view. And this is a, a um, place of, of where much wisdom is needed in, in the church today. Um, a, a By the Book episode is coming soon. It is called Winsome Conviction disagreeing without dividing the church. And we talk a lot in the 
podcast um, interview, because this is what the book's about, but about convictions versus confessional beliefs and how sometimes we muddle the two. But I have reasons for thinking that Ezekiel's passage is not literal. Um, And a pastor that I served with on a church um, disagreed. He didn't think there would be so many details given to us in these last several chapters unless it was literal. And it it was fine that we disagreed. We were able to have a, a normal conversation. My reasons for disagreeing with him and believing that this is not literal is because so much of the Old Testament, the highest greatest, grandest ideals were that one day a new temple was going to come to Jerusalem and transform everything. Well, Jesus was that temple in my understanding of the Bible. This this is what disrupted everything and still is disrupting everything, is that Jesus declared in John 2 to destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Everybody there thought he was speaking about the building, but John gives us a parenthetical note that Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. And now Jesus has empowered his own people and has equipped us and has named us through his spirit as the body of Christ and as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And here, of course, in Revelation, John is now describing this temple that has gone global, And he's described it as a place that has rich water sources and also has trees for food. Um, We've heard passages like this one already in Revelation. Think back to Revelation 7, um, where we have one of those high points again in the middle of the book, where John says, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now here, hunger and thirst are being satisfied. And in Revelation 22, we have the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, a new kind every month. And the leaves of this tree were for the healing of the nations. Well, so many times in the Old Testament, leaves provide shade and shade provides refreshment and rest. And that is oftentimes a symbol of the Lord's protection and the Lord's care in the midst of sun, right? Uh, Beating down on you. So in Revelation 7, the passage I just read, it says, they will neither, they will hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. Okay. John's not describing here for us whether or not you have SPF 50 at the beach. He's not talking about whether or not it's a cloudy day outside. What he's saying is the same way Jeremiah describes um, the, the man who trusts in other people or trusts in himself is like, a, is like a tree planted in the desert and its leaves wither and its flower fades. Um, the man who's planted firmly next to the Lord, next to the water source, his leaves are green, he stays lush, and he is able to flourish. Psalm chapter 1 describes something similar where blessed is the man who you know, takes not, stands not in the counsel of the wicked or sits in the seat of, of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. He meditates on the Lord's law day and night. 
He's like a tree planted by streams of living water. So this idea constantly is the tree of life. It's drawing our source of life from the Lord himself. Well, what a rich blessing this is for the Lord to then give to us part of himself or give him, give us himself, right? In order for us to become the source where the Lord chooses to do his work. So here John's describing this temple that's just billowing forth with water. And the way Ezekiel describes it is everything that water touches comes to life. If it flows into a salt um, water area where nothing can grow, it turns the salt water fresh. And now vegetation is just flourishing across the creation. And wherever this water goes, um, it just, it transforms things. Well, listen then to how Jesus describes for his followers, people who believe in him. Okay. So just listen to this in light of what we're talking about here. In John 7, Jesus says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this, Jesus said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now this is fascinating. Jesus is saying, whoever trusts in me, whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Well, this is exactly what John's describing here in Revelation. John is said that the angel showed him the river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Well, this is why the one seated on the throne, the throne of God and the Lamb, this is why Jesus promises in John 14 that those who believe in him and trust him and abide in him that he and his father will make their home with him. So the Lord's ideal, the Lord's plan is to take his very own presence and put it into the hearts of his people so that the water source and the flourishing and the creation um, nourishing life that the Lord himself has will flow outward through his people to the ends of the earth. And all through this passage in Ezekiel, if you listen to it, it's really, really weird. This is not how reality works, okay? So in, in Ezekiel's vision, he says that he saw water trickling out of the temple. So think of a, you know, you're, you've got a leaky faucet in your house, right? You can't quite get the threads tight just enough to get the water to stop, but you don't want to turn it full blast because, you know, nobody's taking a shower at the moment. But there's this little trickle and it's annoying and you got to call a plumber because that's not right. It, it, it's not coming out fast enough to do you any good, but it's sort of just leaking there. Well, that's what John's saying. He's like, I looked out and I saw this was trickling. Well, then this man who's given me this vision takes me out a thousand cubits, okay? So a cubit is roughly 18 inches. It's the length from the tip of your finger to your elbow, which is just a common way of measuring. So imagine the distance, right? A thousand cubits. So it's like whatever, you know, 1500 feet, something like that, 500 meters. So it's like a little over a quarter of a mile. So John is taken out a quarter of a mile away from where he saw a little trickling water source. Now, if you know anything about water, if somebody washes their car and they've got a little slope on their driveway, they spray it down, they got the soap, and you're out on a walk and you walk past the edge of their, 
driveway, you're going to see a little pool of water down in the, either in the gutter or at least along the edge of the road. You know, they pave the road so that the water goes to the sides. This is normal. But if you're a hundred yards away from that house, you might not see any water. As you begin to approach the house and you're 75 yards away, you might see a little bit of water, but it's kind of stopped flowing because, you know, it runs out of steam, right? Gravity stops it from doing that. If you're 50 yards away, 25 yards away, you might actually see water puddling and it might actually be flowing. And if you walked right up to the house, you would say, oh, this is where the water's coming from. Well, the reason you can do that and relate to my analogy here is because the water source where it's coming from is stronger than it is 100 yards away. That's how it works, right? If you fill up a bunch of water and pour it out, well, as it keeps traveling, eventually it's going to stop. The water's going to quit. But that's the opposite of what's happening in Ezekiel's vision. Ezekiel sees water trickling, and then he goes a thousand cubits away, and the water is now ankle deep. He goes another thousand cubits, and the water is knee deep. He goes another thousand cubits and the water is waist deep and he goes 1,000 cubits farther and the water is so deep he has to swim to get through it. Now, I don't know what kind of an imagination you have, but that one's a hard one to wrap your mind around. That is just not how water works, right? But John's not describing gravity, the flow of water, or how water sources work. He's describing the unbelievable power that the blessings of the Lord have to extend outward toward his creation. And how much of our time, if we went all the way back into Revelation, when we looked at the, the two commands to work it and to keep it, how many times do you and I imagine that our job really is to keep and to preserve and to maintain because if we work too hard and we try to cultivate the ground too quickly, we're going to lose what it is that we already have. And I remember way back at the beginning of Genesis posing the question, does the Lord expect the man and the woman to leave the garden and to leave his presence in order to fill the earth and subdue it? No. The Lord intends that they would take the garden-like state with him where they have his presence, where they have his, the tree of life and the goodness that he gives to them. And they are to cultivate and to work the ground such that they can spread the nature of that garden to the ends of the earth, knowing full well that they won't be spread too thin, that they can continue to cause the creation to flourish, knowing that the blessings and the presence of God will be even stronger the more they go, not weaker. That's the image that Ezekiel is being given. It's a strange image to us, but it gives us confidence and hope that says when we pursue the Lord, we pursue him as individuals, we pursue him as families, we pursue him as communities, it is going to get stronger the more we go because the outward momentum does not mean those on the margins receive the leftovers. No, it means we can expect the Lord to provide those on the margins with the biggest supply we have. And it isn't for us to decide where that supply is going to come from. We don't reach out and take from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. We receive freely from the tree of life. And standing in that position is to be able to offer the world the life-giving nutrients 
the life-giving resources that the Lord himself provides. Now, this fell on deaf ears, I think, in large part to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel saw themselves as special. They saw themselves as over and above other nations because the Lord took a special interest in them. He cautioned them repeatedly not to fall into this error, not to believe that they were more special, but to understand that they were the weakest of all the nations and that the Lord simply chose to lavish his grace on them so that they wouldn't be able to boast in the presence of the rest of the nations that it was because of their own strength and might that they were able to be a blessing, but rather they would know and would be free to communicate to the nations that it was the Lord's grace and it was the Lord's strength and that it was the Lord's power who made it possible for Israel to be a blessing. Again, Israel missed this. Much of their injustice and idolatry came from the thought that they believed they were exempt from the kinds of things that the Lord chose freely to rebuke other people for, not knowing that the fact that he called them to be his special people meant that he took their sins and their waywardness and their disobedience and their idolatry way more seriously. But in Ezekiel's vision, John actually picks up on it and adds to it. Because in Ezekiel's vision, the greatest message of hope and encouragement that Ezekiel was trying to give to the nation of Israel who found themselves in exile was not a global perspective. It was still a national perspective. It was still the hope that God had something in mind for Israel. And so I want you to listen to the last verse I read from Ezekiel 47. It's in verse 12. And John and Ezekiel simply talks about, you know, all kinds of trees for food. It says on the banks on both sides of the river. There's, there's John's image again that he picks up in Revelation 21. I'm sorry, 22. There will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fall, fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month. There it is again, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Now, I want to know if you can pick up on the difference between John's phrase about the healing and Ezekiel's phrase. Ezekiel simply says that the leaves will be for healing. John points out to us that the leaves will be for the healing of the nations. You see, in Ezekiel's vision, every Israelite who read that passage would have applied the healing to them. They would have applied it to themselves, to the people that the Lord God had promised to redeem, had promised to maintain covenant relationship with. But they faltered over and over and over to see Gentiles as also recipients of, this, of the Lord's healing, of the Lord's presence of the Lord's blessings. And that's why I've chosen to title this message or this message, this episode, The Healing of the Nations, because this is the thrust of the passage. John is continually interested in making sure we know people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Every tribe, language, people, and nation. Every tribe, language, people, and nation. Every tribe, language, people, and nation. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. It says the lamb will be in the midst of the, or the throne of God and the lamb will be in this place. His servants will worship him. 
This is again what Revelation seven told us that that um, we serve his uh, the the these people dressed in white robes are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And John tells us in Revelation twenty two verse four that they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Well, here's our image again. Here's our image. The the um, the mark of the lamb, right? The mark of the beast seems to get all the attention in today's political scene, but it's the mark of the lamb that is actually the thrust of the book of Revelation. And this mark of the beast, so-called, is only talked about as a contrast image, as a foil image for the real image. His name will be on their foreheads. His presence and his identity will occupy their minds and thoughts. His identity, his character, his greatness will occupy their actions and the way they serve. That's why um, his name will be written on their foreheads or they would be marked on the right hand or on the forehead. This kind of thing that is, that is always talked about throughout Revelation. The healing of the nations is the goal the people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation is the goal. This is why when we talk about the kingdom of God and we talk about the church, we are talking about a ultra-national, like a, a um, I'm trying to think of the right word, it's supranational. So we are comfortable in our own mindset to look at a people like Israel, and we, we talk about them like the nation of Israel. We, we, we have in our minds this idea of nations, and we function that way um, pretty easily. In fact, we might think of the nation of America or the nation of Germany or the nation of Rome or, you know, um, wh what have you. But this, this becomes problematic when people begin to speak, and you've heard me say this, and so I, I guess let me, let, me, let me put it in context for you. Um, I recently had a conversation with two new members of a church that my church has recently joined with. I'm not sure if you caught on several months ago, I mentioned this on the podcast, but if not, I'll just tell you here. My church, an Anglican church, has joined forces with a Lutheran church in our city, and we are attempting to live out a one united church, what we're calling a shared ministry, between um, a Lutheran congregation and an Anglican congregation. And one of the challenges that comes, um, there are plenty, but one of the challenges that comes is that in a moment, I went from having a church of one size to having a church um, twice that size. And so it has taken me a while and will continue to take me a while to get to know several of these members. Well, I, I visited one of them, um, got a great chance to talk, and her husband um, has been ill for several years and actually does not even attend the church. And so I had met her on a number of occasions, but had never met her husband. And so I went over to their house, and he has been in the Navy, and he spoke a lot to me about his times in Vietnam, his times doing things that he regrets doing, um, and or the the difficult situations he found himself in, many of the nightmares that he's experienced as a result of his service. But he turned to me, and both of them did sort of back and forth interchangeably, and were very concerned to know my views about 
um, having an American flag on the platform or on the not stage is the wrong word, but basically up in the front of the church. And um, again, if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you know I have a few thoughts about that. And I realized in this moment, I'm not really sure how to address this with someone who hasn't even been at the church. Like I'm just now getting to know them. Is this really a battle that I want to fight? And Jesus was very gracious. I, I always pray through those situations as they happen because I, I'm asking, am I willing to say something here? Am I, is this the time to be bold and outspoken and potentially offend someone? Or can I just love people and maybe work around giving a direct answer to the question? And so I chose that option and the conversation sort of shifted. I just listened compassionately to the reasons why they felt that this was um, very important to them. But it's a passage like the one we just looked at in Revelation 22 that shape what I think about putting an American flag inside the worship space of a church. And here's my reasoning. We worship a God whose healing from this tree of life is not limited to his own people, Israel. It is for the nations. It's always been for the nations. And the church itself is the expression on earth of this people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. It just is that. And so when you and I come into a church building, wherever it happens to be, if it is in America or Canada or Mexico or Brazil or China or Afghanistan, etc., we are expressing our worship possibly in the language and or in some of the customs of that particular region of the earth. I mean, I, I definitely speak English when we worship in our service, but I am not elevating the English language over any other language. It's just that I don't know any other language besides English. But to gather into a church, we are celebrating the Jesus who called us out of darkness into light but who has chosen to unite us more closely with people from every tribe, language, people, and nation than we are currently united to people from our own physical nation, if that makes any sense. And so what happens is when those desire to put an American flag in their church, I understand their reasons. But what is actually happening is that they are choosing to elevate that nation over and above other nations, choosing to imagine, as many, many people do, that the Lord has a special place in his heart for America and that America and what America fights for and what America stands for is somehow risen up a little bit above what other nations stand for. And this again is where we get into this issue of empire. God loves nations. He gives himself, he gives the tree of life, that the leaves of which are for the healing of the nations. He loves diversity. He loves um, you know, the color and the flair and the passion and the giftings and the differences and the uniqueness of nations, but nations themselves as people can individually or communally 
can begin to elevate themselves to a position where their own pursuit of greatness takes over the Lord's appreciation for their diversity and they begin to position themselves as gods. This happens on an individual level. This happens at a family level. This happens in communities. This happens in nations. And so at what point does a nation serve the purposes of God? And at what point does that nation turn its attention inward and elevate itself to a point of special status? Well, that's going to have to be for the Lord to decide. But I am not going to put forward a flag that represents the honor and the glory of the nation of America as it is perceived from one person's perspective and elevate that value over and against another country's flag who may be very well pursuing their own glory and honor in ways that look like they contradict American ways but may actually be more pleasing to the Lord when it's all said and done. The difficulty I face as a pastor is that I'm trying to explain this to people who have never even pondered the idea. And I'm up for the challenge because I'm not alone here and I am not here to make up my own answers and to argue somebody into a corner. I would prefer to listen to them, see how their ideas developed, and then to ask questions because I often think that questions allow people to come to answers that they've just never pondered before. And so I know that might have felt like a little bit of a diatribe or, you know, a little bit of a tangent, but this is something very relevant to me. It just happened to me yesterday. But this is where I'm getting this from. I'm getting it from passages like Revelation 22 and a handful of others, if I'm honest. But this is stuff we need to think through. The Lord's concern is for all the nations, not just one. And to put forward our own and to put it in a place where we are gathered to explicitly worship the Jesus who knocked down geographical barriers and ethnic barriers and racial barriers. I can't do it. I am literally putting a barrier back in for those. And and then I'm, I'm declaring now in this church that the things that America does have God's backing because I have connected them in the same place of worship and have now mistakenly um, communicated and bought into the belief that when America is in line with God's ways, then we can expect God's blessings. I don't see the Lord operating that way. It took all of the book of Acts to get the Israelites to stop doing that in relationship to Gentiles. The Jews felt that a person coming to faith in Jesus, sure, do that, but you've got to become Jewish because the Jews have the corner market on the ways of the Lord. And Peter and John and Paul were at pains to get them to understand it is not your Jewishness, it is not your Americanness, it is not your Romanness, whatever, that is making, drawing people closer to the Lord. He has broken down those barriers. Now, we live today in geographically bordered areas. That's fine. But we cannot fall into the trap of imagining that the kingdom of God aligns itself in higher or lesser degrees within those geographical borders because it doesn't. 
it's transnational. It's transborder. It does not have borders. That's the whole point. And this passage, just as much as several we've already looked at in Revelation, communicate that just by the nature of what they're saying. This thing is transferring to all the nations. This thing is as big as the known world, and it is the temple where water flows. Everything it touches comes to life, becomes green, it flourishes, it is filled with lush vegetation, salt water becomes fresh water, the people are drawn in to receive freely from the tree of life, the fruit for their food, and the leaves for the healing of all the nations. That's the direction that redemption is headed which is why it's so important for the church today to adopt that mindset right now. Because this power and beauty and the rivers of the water of life coming out of the hearts of people, that is a reality Jesus has painted for his followers for now. That's why he said, Jesus said this about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, in the church year, we are coming up on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. Just in case you're unaware, that was a past event. So Jesus is now describing in John's gospel of a day that is coming soon beyond the point that Jesus was speaking these words, but that point has already come. And what that means is that for those who believe in Jesus and who have received and have participated in his spirit, out of their hearts now will flow rivers of living water meant to bless, meant to cause the creation to flourish. This is why, again, if we go back to Revelation 3 to the church at Laodicea, who Jesus refers to in terms of water. Because you are lukewarm and are neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You remember we talked about the city of Laodicea was equidistant from the two cities of Colossae and Hierapolis. And Hierapolis was known for its hot springs, medicinal springs, springs where people would travel for miles away to sit in these hot natural springs to receive healing for their bodies aches, sores, you know, you could heal them with heat. Well, the city of Colossae was known for its freezing cold springs and people would come there and get delicious cold water. Well, you had to travel a decent distance from Laodicea to arrive either at Hierapolis and to participate in their hot springs or to Colossae to participate in their cold water. But the Laodicean Christians wanted to be the self-sufficient ones who didn't need to rely on anyone or anything, including Jesus, for their spiritual lives. And so they built an aqueduct system that would pump in the hot water springs from Hierapolis and the cold water springs from Colossae so that they could partake of those riches and blessings without having to leave their own city. And guess what temperature the water was from the hot springs or from the cold springs by the time they arrived at Laodicea. They were lukewarm. And they were disgusting. Hot coffee that's lukewarm, gross. Lemonade that's lukewarm, gross. It needs to be one or the other. We drink it, 
we taste it, whatever. You get in a you get in a hot tub and it's 85 degrees, that doesn't feel good. Nobody's soaking their muscles. You take a big glass of water on a cold day, it's not refreshing with no ice. It's not refreshing if it's lukewarm. And Jesus is saying to his church, you're supposed to be agents of healing. You're supposed to be agents of care and of of comfort and balm to soothe aching bones and sores and psyches and souls. Or you're supposed to offer a cup of cold water to drink to somebody in need. You're supposed to be a place of refreshment, a place where people can find relief, where people can find rest. And you're not being any of those things. Because you're working entirely out of your own self-assuredness and you're not able to offer the blessings that my spirit would freely flow through you to others if you would just trust in me. This is the image that Jesus is painting. This is the image that the church needs to reclaim. This is the image that might invite us all to a place of repentance before it invites us to a place of growth because we might be so far off the mark that we don't have any other choice but to repent. And repentance is a gift. It's a gift that he gives it to us freely for the opportunity to be challenged, to grow, and to be strengthened. And that's what John is painting for us here, is this beautiful picture of where all of these resources and blessings and riches are just being lavished on the creation. A creation that we get to take part in. And a creation that all the nations get to experience as well. That's the calling. That's our calling. For the church to be the people that the Lord can choose to use and bless the rest of the world. So that is all the time we have for this week. I'm very thankful for you for continuing to listen in. Received a couple emails this week of those who've been encouraged by different episodes or have different questions. Thanks for reaching out. I will respond to you soon if I've not already done so. Thank you to those of you who've left me a rating or a review or both. And if you've been listening to the podcast for some time and have never taken the time to leave me a rating or a review, would you do that this week? That would be a huge encouragement to me and it would give others the opportunity to find the podcast and to be encouraged by it as well. Or go out this week and find one or two episodes that really stood out to you and just share them with a friend. And that's that's really the best way for this podcast to, to grow is um, through your help. And so I'm very appreciative to you. If you'd like to reach out to me for any reason, questions, comments, thoughts, you can reach me at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for tuning in each week. Talk to you next time.